Well, welcome. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Very good. Very good. I want to spend some time in this uh, Mark chapter one passage this morning, uh, but I want to acknowledge yesterday uh, was just amazing. It was amazing to uh, be out, to be uh, serving together, to really be spread out all over the city. And uh, I really saw yesterday that the things, even in the young life of our church, the, the values beginning to just start coming out, right? The last couple of weeks we've been talking about um, how the kingdom makes sense, like Jesus's kingdom and what it looks like and the attributes of it, the health and the community and the justice. And even in just some small ways, I was able to see that uh, yesterday. Our group was packaging uh, meals and we were largely uh, just in the background. And so we didn't uh, interact face to face. Um, and we were able to work together, meet some new friends, but it was just quiet. We were just back there doing our thing. And I was like, this is great. We don't, we don't need to uh, be flashy, take a, take a ton of pictures, like PR statements or whatever it is. Uh, I was just uh, overjoyed to uh, see us serving in that way. And so thank you, thank you, thank you for um, doing that together. And um, we will do it again. In fact, I should say this. Um, we want to uh, be consistent at a place like the Father's Heart. And so if that's something that you're interested in, uh, that you have a passion for, um, let's empower you to do that. And so let's partner together. If you want to be a liaison between us and uh, the Father's Heart so we can you know, get four, five, six, seven, eight spots, whatever it may be, then we can be there on a consistent basis. And so if that's something that interests you, um, please let's talk about that. Um, Let me pray and then we'll get into our text for today. And so Father, um, I'm just blown away that you still speak uh, through your word and uh, we just set aside this time. We open our minds to you and we say, um, God, if you have something to say, we're open. And uh, I, I pray right now, God, um, for myself, I, I feel inadequate to, to teach these words in a way that uh, does justice to what you're calling us to do. And so, um, God, would your spirit be in our midst and may we be open and ready to hear what you have for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I'm a sucker for uh, a bit of quick wisdom. Uh, I sign up for a lot of those email chains that like send you quotes and things like that. So James Clear has a Thursday email. If you don't subscribe to it, it's awesome. Uh, But Thursday, he said this. One of the only true shortcuts in life is finding it's coming. It's coming. We'll get there. There we go. One of the only true shortcuts in life is finding an expert and apprenticing under them. And in many regards, this is what you and I are. We are the product of our teachers. We are the product of the voices that spoke into our lives, right? Uh, The people that gave us hard skills like brushing our teeth, teaching us to walk, our computer skills. Uh, I was thinking about swiping a Metro card. Like somebody taught us to do that and we stunk at it at one point, right? These are the hard skills, the tangible and the accessible skills that somebody taught us along the way. And then someone taught us soft skills too, creativity and collaboration and ideation and problem solving, empathy, right? Less tangible, but we learned these uh, soft skills and we are continually learning these things, but we learned to live from someone else. And our teachers, maybe our, our literal teachers, took us under their wing and said, let me show you how to walk through this life. And maybe it was just a, a few pivotal people in your life. Maybe you can name a bunch of them. But as we begin today, I want you to think about your best teacher. It could be a, a literal teacher or uh, maybe it was a mentor or someone who guided you along the way. What were some of the features of that? And I actually want to do this out loud. What are some of the descriptors or behaviors of the best teacher you had? And you can just say it out loud. 
the best descriptors or behaviors of the best teacher you ever had? They were vulnerable. That's good. What else? They were patient with you. They asked you questions. They gave you time. Good. What else? Two more. They were inclusive. One more. They were on your team, right? So uh, it's, it's interesting. The way that we begin to describe a teacher is very personal, right? It's very intimate. It's, it's about who we are as a people and we're being drawn into them. To me, the best teachers are the ones that are the most present, the most inquisitive about the student. And ultimately, the best teachers in my mind are the ones that looked at you and said that you looked at them and said, I want to be like you. I want your life. I immediately um, am thinking of someone who mentored me through high school. His name is Dustin, and um, he created consistent space for me in his life. I didn't always love the consistent space as a high schooler because it was 6 a.m. at McDonald's. Um, The 6 a.m. is bad and the McDonald's is bad, but um, he created this space weekly where we would get together. We would eat together. We would talk about life. We would read the Bible. Uh, We were reading C.S. Lewis, and he included me. In his family's life. So I got to see him as a teenager interact with his wife and with his kids. And as someone who was so desperate for a father figure in that season, I met someone who saw me. Not just like who I was at like a sort, as a sort of like angsty emo like uh, teenage kid. But he saw who I could be. And he gave that space in his own life. And even, I love that somebody shared this. Um, gave me access to his life, some of the tensions, uh, the vulnerability of his own, uh, his own life, his, his own disappointments and shortcomings. And as I look at my life, I've probably learned the most from this man because education is way more about emulation than it is information. It's way more about seeing someone's life and uh, processing through consistently with it than just principles and ideas. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, follow me. As I follow the example of Christ. And here is where Jesus is drawing us in slowly. He's saying, follow me. Come and see how I live. Come and see how I do things. See my way of life. Emulate me. Be my disciple. And so here's where we've been in Mark. We're, we're moving along slowly, but we're moving. Um, Jesus has been baptized. He spent time in the wilderness, a time of testing and preparation. Uh, the last two Sundays, we've talked about the elements of the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus' inaugural message is the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And then we sort of turn into a more narrative approach in the coming weeks to um, Jesus' life in teaching. We're actually getting the content of what it means to follow. And so here's what it says in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, so that's Simon Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for their fishermen. So fun fact, the Sea of Galilee is actually a lake. Uh, it's the largest freshwater lake in Israel, and it's 64 square miles. It's uh, about the size of, like, Washington, uh, D.C. And so Jesus is walking along. He sees these fishermen, and Jesus says to them, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, this text is severely uh, simplistic, right? Jesus walks up to people. He says, follow me. And what does it say? Immediately they dropped everything. And follow. And so naturally, what, when we read this, if we, if we slow down enough to read this, 
uh, we, have, we should have a lot of questions. What's going on? What's taking place? And maybe we even bring our sort of doubts and skepticism to the, to the passage. Or maybe even you start to think, well, okay, this passage is like a, a little one in a big book where uh, I just can't grasp. Like I can't put my mind around the things, the, the bad things that people have done in the name of God. I mean, but whatever your skepticism is or the, the doubt that's in your mind, um, one of the things that you can't, um, I shouldn't say you can't argue, but that you uh, shouldn't push past is what you're seeing in this passage is the inception of a movement that, with the numbers you can't argue with. And so here's, what I, here's the question that this, um, this passage sort of answers in our minds is, how did a tiny and obscure messianic movement in northern Israel become the dominant belief system of the world? How did this obscure movement become the dominant belief system of the world? And here's a chart that I think is really helpful. This is, um, comes from Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity. And uh, in our passage today, Jesus has zero followers. At the end of it, he has four followers, all right? And then in year 40, it's estimated that there are 1,000 Christians. And then in year 50, there are 1,400 uh, it's believed that Mark is written anywhere between um, 66 and 70 AD. So right in there, there are about 1,400 Christians in the world. And then it just starts to exponentially grow here. 150, there's 45,000, 251.1 million, 306 million, 350, 34 million. And then today, um, it's estimated that there are 2.3 million. And so how did a tiny and obscure messianic movement become the dominant faith of the world? Uh, Jesus asked people to follow him. Like that, that's, this is the process um, that gets us to understand how Christianity became what it was today. I'm not saying you may agree with all of it right now, but what I'm saying is, is we're charting the exponential growth. And what was the invitation? Follow me, come up underneath me, and become my disciple. And so the question then naturally becomes, what's a disciple? Because Jesus talked about this a lot. What is a disciple? In the Greek, the, uh, the word disciple is mathetes. It's a learner. Uh, And then we have a short definition here. A disciple is a person or an apprentice who has decided to be with another person. Think your teacher, right? In order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become who that person is. And I think this word apprentice is uh, really helpful uh, for us in thinking about what a disciple is. Because what do we do uh, when we take up an internship or a residency or an apprentice? What do we do? We put ourselves under that person and we say, I am here to learn from you. You are the one with the right information. I'm going to place myself under your authority in a learner's posture. And if I fail, I fail, right? I'm learning on the go and I can ask questions. But what does Jesus do? Jesus piques people's curiosity. It's it's amazing how people are so curious about Jesus, the way that he responds to people, uh, the way that he pushes back on the religious leaders, the way that he is so gracious to his followers and says the same thing over and over and over again. Follow me, join me, accompany, accompany me. And so I know this this gets a little tedious, um, but it's important to understand um, the rabbi teacher relationship. Right. We, we don't have like a framework for this. Um, we have uh, been schooled in standardized testing and passing the next grade. And so we actually need to understand uh, Jesus's educational model in his time, especially the uh, specifically a Jewish educational system. And so uh, let me geek out on this for uh, just a second. And uh, you'll see what um, in a broader way what Jesus is being invited into here. And the, the Jewish educational model um, is uh, threefold. And so in Jesus's time, uh, most students were sent to what's called Bet Sefer. 
And this would be the house of the book. And so from ages 6 to 10, uh, these students would go to school. And in the house of the book, it was a five-day learning program. And they, in this, would be asked to fully memorize the Torah, right? The, the law, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Fully memorized. And that was Bet Sefer. And for most kids, they were good. Like, they would go back, work with the family trade. Everything was fine. And that was it. But for the ones who really had, had the good memory and were ready to, to learn information and said, I want to keep going, they would push into what's called Bet Talmud. And this is called the House of Learning, ages 10 through 14. And here, uh, they, they would memorize the whole Old Testament. But not only that, they were learning, but they, they were doing something else. They were learning how to ask questions. You, you see in the New Testament, um, Jesus doesn't respond to a lot of uh, questions, but he actually answers back with questions. And so where did he learn that? He learned that in this house of learning, this Bet Talmud. And actually, uh, it's, uh, in, in one of the Gospels, it says that Jesus was sitting, uh, teaching people, and he was asking them questions. He was responding. He was doing this with other people. And so most people didn't make it here, but if a student did make it here, then at the end of their time, most of them, again, would go back, learn the family business, and then some of them would push on. But the next step is a little bit different. The Bet Midrash, this is the house of the study, 14 and older. Um, and if, 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 if you were smart enough and knew the scriptures well enough, you would be given an opportunity um, to go to a rabbi and to seek uh, the rabbi out for further education. You'd come to the rabbi and you'd say, I want to become your disciple. I want to come underneath you. I want to be like you. And the rabbi would grill you. He'd ask you all sorts of questions because the rabbi wants to know, are you good enough to be my student? What does the student know? What can the student do? Can the student be like me? And if the rabbi didn't think you had what it takes, he'd say, well, you know what? I know you love God. I know you know the Torah, but you don't have what it takes to be my disciple. So you need to go back and learn the family trade. But in rare occasions, if the rabbi thought highly enough of you, he would take you on as his student and it would become your job to become like the rabbi in every single way. Not just to know what the rabbi knows, but to be just like the rabbi. Uh, One scholar I was reading this week is really fascinating. It said um, in these times, if a rabbi hurt his leg and was walking with a limp, you would see his disciples walking behind him with a limp. Not because his leg was hurt but because he was trying to emulate and be just like the rabbi. And so this is the call. I want to be just like you. And that would inform everything about me. I would follow you. It would shape me. And then I can live like you. Here's Dallas Willard. He's a theologian. He he, is just a goldmine of wisdom on discipleship. He says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who uh, by profession, profession, or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him. Jesus poured his life into a few disciples and taught them to make other disciples. 17 times we find Jesus with the masses, but 46 times we see him with his disciples. And isn't this the critique already of Christians in our time? Right? Uh, but Gandhi, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ, right? And maybe you've felt this over the last few years. Like, I got to distance myself from this Christianity thing. Whether you believe in it or not, you're like, I got to distance myself from the divisive, overly politicized, and maybe annoying Christians. Like, um, and in one part that's correct, the, the correction is, is like, will we be people who are disciples of this 
Jesus. And so what, is it, what does this passage teach us about this idea of being a disciple? And let me tell you three things here. Um, the first is this. Is discipleship simply means being with Jesus. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he sees Simon, Pete, Simon Peter and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for their fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. I'm going to be honest here. When I read this passage the first time uh, a couple weeks ago, I was frustrated. I'm like, there's actually a lot going on here that you're giving us no answers to. And so one of the things I thought was like, well, let's just find this passage in another gospel, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We got three other iterations of the story. Let's just go there. We might find something a little like uh, more palpable. But I thought, what is Mark trying to do by just giving us, like, follow me? And immediately they follow. What, what is Mark trying to do? And what I realized is Mark is really smart. Mark is really smart. He's telling the story in a way that you and I are not the point. He's telling the story in a way where the disciples are not the point, but the point is actually Jesus himself. Jesus has a plan. Jesus has a purpose. Jesus has the authority and power. And Mark wants us to understand that following Jesus is about Jesus, and it's not about us. And that's why I say, well, it's, it's frustrating. You get, you're getting a lot of the drama, but no answers. And then, of course, I, I found this from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and this was really helpful. What is said here about the content of discipleship? Follow me. Walk behind me. That is all. Going after him is something without specific content. It is truly not a program for one's life, which must be sensible to implement. It's neither a goal nor an ideal to be sought. It's not even a matter for which, according to human inclination, it would be worth investing anything at all, much less oneself. And what happens? Those called leave everything they have, not in order to do something valuable. Instead, they do it simply for the sake of the call itself. Because otherwise they could not walk behind Jesus. So what is the content of this thing called discipleship? The content is Jesus himself. To to follow Jesus implies that we're entering a way of life that's shaped and given direction by this person that calls us to himself. I keep getting getting ads on Instagram um, for masterclass. Does anybody know what what this masterclass is? Yeah, it's essentially a a streaming platform that makes these videos available to you for specific topics, business, leadership, uh, photography, cooking, writing, uh, whatever it may be. And the promise is for $15 a month, you know, you can learn screenwriting from Aaron Sorkin or, you know, you can learn to make an endive salad from Gordon Ramsay or something, which actually sounds kind of cool. and so I go on there, and I'm like, oh, is, would this be like a worthy investment? And I, I start clicking around. I'm like, oh, wow, like um, I can spend $15 a month, and I have access to all of these videos. And so I said, how many are there? And so it's on average, um, each master class has 20 lessons and are 10 minutes each. And I was like, 10 minutes each? Like, what can you teach? It's, it, it's three hours and 20 minutes. Like, you're not even into the Chamber of Secrets, all right, at three hours and 20 minutes. Like, you, you're barely halfway, all right? Like, three hours and 20 minutes. Like, what can you even do? And, and in some ways, this, um, we love this culturally, like the condensed learning, right? Like, can I test out of this class, right? Like, it's, everything is so condensed. You're like, give me the nuggets. Like, I said that at the beginning, right? I want the nuggets of wisdom. I just want the, the little thing that can just be dropped on me so that I can, I can learn. And what is the content of, of this following of Jesus? What is it? It's time in. It's being with Jesus, right? You can't become like Jesus. You can't do the things you did if you never spend time with Jesus. And so the greatest things in time, they t- uh, in life, take time. 
If you meet someone and you, you start falling in love, you may get the, the rush and the emotions coming your way. You may say, I want to spend all my time up front. And then you're just like, I'm ready to dive in. I'm in love. And then you get in your first argument. You're like, I don't know if this is going to work out. Right? I got I to slow this thing down. But what happens over time? You just grow as you develop to be with this person. I was thinking about, um, I don't know if you guys remember the five love languages. Um, and I was thinking about that idea of like quality time. I was like, quality time? Like what about quantity time? That's what people really want. That's what's really gonna make people feel like they're heard, understood, valuable. When you put in a quant- amount of quantity. And so discipleship means being with Jesus, but also it means in this passage, reordering our priorities, right? So um, in verse 17, it says, Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And what does it say? Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Like, dude, take the nets, right? Sell those on Facebook marketplace or something. What are you doing? This is crazy. The next one, immediately James and John, they left their father, Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk um, among scholars about um, fishermen, their trade. Was it like low class job? Was it middle class job, high class job? And one of the things that was really fascinating that Mark really helps illuminate is Simon Peter and Andrew seem to be along the shore fishing. And so they probably have a more modest business. But James and John are with their father. They have a boat and it says that they have a hired servant. And so what that means is they likely have a more robust business. So they're actually leaving something behind. Simon and Andrew leaving a a, a bit of finances behind, but James and John are leaving the family business. And so the situation described here is one of leaving behind relational and economic priorities. And you know, um, I'm I'm almost wondering if if I'm the disciples, like, Jesus, could I do this part-time, right? Like, I don't know about full time. I don't know about like all the time following you. But isn't this isn't this us sort of just like this um, side gig, side hustle, growth opportunity? Jesus comes along, follow me like, hey, I'll take your opportunity to be your rabbi, but I'm going to take the finances and I'm going to be able to hang out with my father over here. And so I think that's the a temptation in our time that we would be part time disciples. Could I do both? And, and, you know, in, in a lot of ways, we don't even we don't obviously verbalize that. But what, what we're saying is we're saying, like, Jesus, when it benefits me, I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, I'm, I'm a follower of you. But then other times, like, I got to I got to part from that. Like at work, when when we're in conversation, there is no way that I am claiming that I have been to church in the last year that I am around you, that I am following you. But here's the thing about discipleship is, is, is it's a reordering of priority. It's a reordering of these priorities where we're saying, Jesus, you're the one that actually leads. And the way that Jesus leads and the way that I follow are symbiotic. They, they go in tandem with one another. We don't get to say, you lead and I'll catch up. But we say, I'm right behind you because you are my rabbi. And so what does it then require of us is a simple obedience. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is in the book of Genesis. And God comes to this man, Abraham, um, and um, he says, um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to follow me. And here's a passage in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I'll curse. 
and in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. What does it say? Go from your country. Go from your kindred. Go from your father's house. Uh, One translation says, leave your native country, leave your relatives, leave your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. And every time I'm like, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I want all the details. I want all the details. I want to know exactly how much it's going to cost. I, know exa- I want to know everything that's going to happen along the way and what happens. Leave your native country. Leave your relatives. Leave your, leave your father's land. And what does it say? Go to the land I will show you. It's like, no. Like, Abram's like, what? Like, who are you? God's like, I'm God. Where are you going? I'm not telling you. <laughs> what? What are you talking about? I'm about to leave everything I know. I'm about to leave my inheritance. I'm about to leave my family. I'm about to leave my land. And you're just saying, walk out into the desert. And God says, yes, go and I'll show you. And in general, I think that, I think that we're smarter than we are obedient. And so we have the necessary information, most of us, um, to, to follow Jesus, to, to do what he says to do, to know that the way he's inviting us to live is a better way to live. But we, we actually choose to do things a different way. And so I want to bring this, down, this idea down to today. If, if, you are, um, if you are a follower of Jesus today, like your, your whole life is discipleship. Like everything that you do is a, a part of this. And I know that we sit here in church and we dialogue with ourselves, and, you know, we're thinking about what's next. And we have, we have this debate going on in our head uh, with, with God. And, and we're even asking questions about God. Do you care? Are you there? Like what's going on? And so often, I don't know if you're like me, I'm like this type A personality where I'm like trying to figure out the, the plan. Like what's the 10 year plan? What am I going to do? Like how, I, I sit in dialogue with God. Like, should we do this? Should we do that? Uh, maybe you're sitting here thinking like, should I do this job? Should I take that job should i date this person should i get back on hinge like you're like your mind is everywhere right hey that's a real prayer all right you should be praying about that here's the question it's not what's what's like eight nine ten steps but the question in this um, becomes this what is my next faithful step and so like if you're here today and you walked in and you are trying to determine something about your life or you're at a crossroads here it is what is your next faithful step that that's it and sometimes i want to make this really nitty-gritty sometimes the next faithful step is responding to the email sometimes the next faithful step is just picking up the phone and just dialing you don't even know what you're going to say and just call right that's the next faithful step and 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 what, what that amounts to is um a reprioritization of your priorities to say i can't i can't control manage everything in the future but i can do what i can do today and so lastly, disciple, discipleship means a journey. And so don't forget, we're in Mark chapter 1, right? Like this is, just, this is just the early stages of a journey. And what Jesus calls his disciples into is not ethereal. Like this is a concrete call on his disciples. Follow me. Like for, for, for them in that time, it was literally follow me. Not because you've hit rock bottom in your life. Not because of something that's happened in the past. Not, not because of something that's going to happen in the future. It is a concrete call that always comes to us in the present. Right? We can only choose to follow Jesus always right now in the present. And Jesus invites us into that journey now. And so wherever you are today, this is, the, this is where the, the, the funnel sort of runs to. Is Are you an apprentice of Jesus? 
And maybe, maybe you'd say, well, you know, this isn't the right season, like, or I'm actually kind of putting that on the shelf right now because that's, that's not working with, with my stage of life. I'm not ready. I'm burnt out. Actually, I just have way too many questions. Or I, I need to get the questions right first. And that's not it. Jesus calls us, follow me in the present. And here's Willard, Willard one more time. This just blew my mind this week. There is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. There's no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. Greed, fear, injustice, divorce, suffering, rejection, violence, apathy, grief, war, death. Like there are some problems in our world that technology will never solve. There are problems in our world that education will never solve. There are problems in our world that money will never solve. But there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus can't solve. Or here's how Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is life. And for, for some of us, like, it's like, all right, we got to be radical. Like, we got we to gotta charge the hill. We got to, like, say the right things. We got to read the Bible. We got to pray. And, like, God is going to give us this great reward in heaven. It's going to be um, amazing. But see, God is not just like raising the bar, right? Like Christians are not like, oh, they're good. And then disciples are like, yes, they, they have it figured out, right? Like that, that's the temptation today is like, you're like, wow, the bar was really raised for what a Christian is and should be. No, no, no. Jesus calls you to follow him now. But what you and I actually find, and I'll just say this personally, I'm remarkably fickle. I waver. I'm remarkably insecure. I'm shaky. But God is ever patient with us in his invitation to follow. And so discipleship means a journey. But don't forget the one who calls you. Here's a poem that I'll wrap up with. Um, and I just, thought, I, I just thought this was really helpful. This is um, from a woman. Her name is Margaret Halaska. She's a Franciscan nun. And this poem is titled Covenant. It just says this. The father knocks at my door seeking a home for his son. Rent is cheap, I say. I don't want to rent. I want to buy, says God. I'm not sure I want to sell, but you might come in to look around. I think I will, says God. I might let you have a room or two. I like it, says God. I'll take two. You might decide to give me more someday. I can wait, says God. I'd like to give you more, but it's a bit difficult. I need some space for me. I know, says God, but I'll wait. I like what I see. Hmm. Maybe I can let you have another room. I really don't need that much. Thanks, says God. I'll take it. I like what I see. I'd like to give you the whole house, but I'm not sure. Think on it, says God. I wouldn't put you out. Your house would be mine and my son would live in it. You'd have more space than you've ever had before. I don't understand at all. I know, says God, but I can't tell you about that. You'll have to discover it for yourself. That can only happen if you let him have the whole house. A bit risky, I say. Yes, says God, but try me. I'm not sure I'll let you know. I can wait, says God. I like what I see. And in a typical rabbi scenario that we described before with like the Jewish educational models, what would the, rab- what would the student do? The student comes to the rabbi. The student comes to the rabbi. Rabbi, can I learn your ways? Rabbi, can I do what you do? That's, that's the way it normally goes. But Jesus is totally backwards. Totally backwards. And what he calls us to, we respond to. Jesus, yes, I'll become your disciple. But Jesus comes to us and says, follow me. We're not going to him begging. He says, I'll come 
to you. And one of the things that we do every week is that we celebrate this meal together, um, communion. And so if you want to grab your cup that was uh, around you, hopefully soon we can uh, get rid of these cups to go and we can do this a little differently. And open it up. So I want to leave some space for you. I don't, you know, I don't know what you're thinking through or, you know, what you want to um, pray about. Or maybe you're like, I don't even, I'm not ready for this yet. Like, I don't even, I, I, I don't even want to think about that yet. No problem. Wherever you're at today spiritually, that's awesome. Um, we can use this time to reflect. But the invitation to follow Jesus is actually, uh, this is a really tangible way to think about it. Um, it's, it's very practical. It's, it's, we, we can taste it. When you open it, you can smell it. You can feel it. And uh, this represents um, Jesus' body broken for us. And then the cup represents Jesus' blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The rabbi that comes to you. right Now, we don't have to chase down the rabbi. The rabbi came to us. And so we take this um, bread and we just say this. The Lord Jesus, on the night of his arrest, took bread. And after giving thanks to God, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the saving death of the risen Lord until he comes. And we take the cup. I'm going to pray and then um, take a moment to, to sit and to reflect today. I know we don't get a lot of opportunities to do that. So let me pray and then we'll uh, leave some space for that. So, Father, uh, as I take this this cup, I'm reminded that I'm not worthy, uh, we are not worthy collectively um, to take it, to partake in your meal. And and yet, that's exactly what the meal is an invitation to. It's an invitation to relationship with you, to, to, to meet you in a tangible way, to remember what you've done through your son, Jesus. And God, so thank you as we look at this passage for invitation to follow after your son Jesus who not only sets an example of what it would look like to um, to see flourishing on earth but invites us into deep relationship and so God uh, whatever whatever it is wherever we are I just pray right now that um, this space would be created where that uh, you would become real in this moment that you're not a distant God but you are here by your spirit be in this place leave this space for you to speak.